Welcome to Bad Science, the show that breaks down the science of a movie with a comedian and a scientist. Today we're discussing 2005's Madagascar, so I'll ask about biodiversity, lemurs, and hopefully one of our guests will sing I Like to Move It. But first, a short word from our sponsor. Bad science. Did the movie get it right? Bad science. Or will we have to fight? Hi everyone, I'm your host Ethan Edinburgh and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. First up, she's a decision scientist and conservation planner at The Nature Conservancy and the Center for Biodiversity and Global Change at Yale University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jennifer McGowan. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. Your first podcast. That is true. This is monumental. Sound the alarms. I I agree. It's like kind of a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious. I'm like, do I have my facts right? Probably not. But, you know. (laughs) We'll see how we go. Excellent. And I assume to prepare, you also, you know, you did like three, four shots of tequila or like you pounded a cold brew or something. Definitely. And listen to Real to Real on repeat at least 17 times. (laughs) I hope we spend a lot of time talking about you like to move it uh, by Real to Real. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you uh, before getting going here, um, you've trained hundreds of scientists to use the world's leading spatial planning decision support tool, which is called Markson, if I have that correct. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I'm a decision scientist, which is kind of a a weird title. Um, But basically what it means is I help people, governments, NGOs around the world uh, figure out what actions they can take in space and time to save biodiversity and other things that they care about. So basically, I pull together a little bit of ecology, mathematics, operations research, economics, and we put it all together and try and inform smart decision making. And so a big part of that is training and capacity building because it's not something that everyone has uh, expertise in. And so I was very lucky to spend the last seven years. I got to travel to, I don't know, over 20 countries or so and work on actual applied serious of consequence uh, conservation projects. So it's it's been wow. remarkable and it's thrilling and it's depressing and it's challenging, but we, yeah. we, we plot on. Well, Jennifer, it's truly an honor to have you on the show. I feel like I'm talking to a superhero right now. Like you're, you're the person that like in a movie, the president will call in to help him make a decision uh, or her make a decision. And it's like a job that I don't believe exists where I'm like, what do we, we don't have an expert in all of these things that just helps people make decisions, but that does exist in reality. And it's what you do. Yeah, it is. I don't know if I'm a superhero. Um, I'll take it though. Hey, it sounds like it. But uh, speaking of superheroes, I got to introduce our next guest. He is an actor and writer who appeared on our Airbud episode back in December of 2019. And you may know him from the improvised musical podcast Off Book. It's Zach Reno. Sound the alarms. Here I am. <laughs> sound the alarms, baby. You, you said that when you were introducing Jennifer. And I was like, you don't sound alarms when a good thing is happening. No, I feel like um, it's like the beginning of that Christina Aguilera song where they're going sound the alarms. And it's like because because this song is about to happen. OK, you know, yeah, I, I tend to equate alarms with you know, <laughs> get to a tsunami shelter. Right, something's wrong. Someone has broken into my home. Well, listen, Zach, sound the alarms because you're in the house today. I'm, and... so, I'm so happy to be here, Ethan. And I'm so happy to have Googled all of the lyrics to I Like to Move It. <laughs> However many you think there are, there are more. There's more. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so true. I listened to the entire song for the first time probably ever. I don't know if I've heard the entire song before today. I'm and certain yeah. I have not. There are lyrics in the, <laughs> that I'm looking at here that I can say with 100% certainty have never passed my ears before. And Dr. Jennifer McGowan, that's a good first question to you. Have you ever listened to I Like to Move It in its entirety? No, but I was trying to prepare for this by going into a Wikipedia wormhole on lemurs, and I ended up just getting distracted by the wormhole of real to real. <laughs> And in 1994, it was on the Billboard Hot 100. And it was like number one in France and the Netherlands, which as a scientist, I just simply can't explain. That, wow. make, that makes sense to me because you guys know the story behind I Want It That Way, right? No. The Backstreet Boys song? So the Backstreet Boys song that I Want It That Way is a filler lyric written by Swedish people. They were like, it's going to be something like this, but English is their second language and it doesn't really mean anything. And they wrote like three versions of lyrics to replace it, but never found something as catchy as that. So they just wow. left it. And I like to move it is not filler <laughs> lyric, but it's so simple that like, I get why it would be number one in a foreign country. Or the same way like Macarena, right. right? It's like, it's not about liking to move it. It's just about it's getting just a catchy to say thing to that say. you like to move it, move it. Yes. And about saying physically fit <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I got to say, though, and, and tell me if you guys got this from the song. When I was listening to I Like to Move It, it sounded like he was really obsessed with girls moving it and girls dancing. But I wish that all of his verses were about how much he likes to dance. Because right. saying I like to move it, I don't know, it was confusing for me. Because in the verse, he's definitely being like, here are all these, here are all these beautiful women. And I like the way they move I it. Just want, I, want, I want them to know that I also like to move it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe that's what it is. Why wasn't that the catchy chorus? You because know, I also like to move it does not fit, fit as well into the rhythm. I also like, like to move it. <laughs> that's super catchy. What's the problem? No, you're right. Okay, good. In the lemur, in the lemur dance club, I think anything goes. Yeah, that's true. And actually, this is a good segue, Jennifer, because I, as many people, I, I think, or, or, or possibly, don't know much about lemurs. I didn't know much about Fusa either, mm. which I'm, is how they pronounce it in the movie. So I assume that that's a correct pronunciation. But I watched a video of lemurs getting high <laughs> off of millipedes. Interesting. I don't know about that, but it sounds like a pretty unique evolutionary uh, behavior. Lemurs are pretty interesting, actually, and I'm no expert, so I'll preface this by saying everything I'm about to say I learned on Wikipedia this morning. But... Madagascar, you know, used to be a part of the mega continent Gondwana land. And about 160 million years ago, it separated off. And then it separated again into what is now known as India, the Seychelles, and Madagascar. And so lemurs were around. They're, they're kind of a, uh, an earlier version of primates, which is, you know, we are a part of that as well. And I think they were doing pretty well around uh, the continent until monkeys came online and monkeys started basically driving them out and towards extinction. But by that time, the lemurs of Madagascar were already well off their way, floating on this beautiful island. And so they've evolved in isolation 
for 60 million years. And now there's over a hundred different species of lemur. It's something called evolutionary radiation, uh, which is the process of basically heaps of diversifying species that all come from the same common ancestors. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because radiation to me- I think it's a good thing. Oh, so similarly to sound the alarms- (laughs) It's a good thing. (laughs) It's a good thing. Well, it results in over a hundred different species of lemurs. and, And I think that one point they were sometimes as big as gorillas. But when humans arrived, we quickly handled those larger lemurs. And and now we have roughly 120, but it's hard to be certain because there's always new species being found as we dig into the genes and taxonomies. But um, super cool creatures. Yeah, definitely. But an odd movie in general. Can we all agree with that? I don't know how you guys feel about this, but maybe just too many pop culture references. Every five, ten minutes, they were referring to another movie. There was an American Beauty sequence or or homage which was like the second time in the movie that they were insinuating that alex the lion wants to like romantically hook up with a steak this movie was frustrating to me because as a writer there's a lot of things that you will get notes on that you are told that you have to do in a movie and this movie doesn't do any of them this movie is like yeah um basically we're gonna the first act is they're gonna be at the zoo and then they're going to be on an island and then they're going to, I guess, stay on the island. And that's forever. Well, except right at the end, I guess, where they decide, like, let's actually tour the world. And then the movie just ends. But they don't because then the penguins like, actually, you can't. The boat's out of gas and you stay on the island. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, it was an odd, odd movie. It's, it seems like a lot of, you know, we've done kids movies like Airbud, for example, the one you were on, Zach, is a good example of this, I'd say, where it's it's kind of entertaining for the adults as well. They're kind of looking out for both. And for me, this one was way more just like, no, we're going for kids, a thousand percent foot on the gas kids movie. Yeah, which is interesting, though, because they do have Alex having some psychedelic episodes, like whenever he gets tranquilized. There's one, I think, when he first gets darted and it goes on like a really trippy Willy Wonka themed psychedelic (laughs) escapade, which I was totally for. Yeah. That was that was probably one of the best parts of the movie. <laughs> the zebra had a treadmill at the beginning, which this was good true. because his pen was very small. I wanted to ask about that too. Like, are there zoos that exist that look anything like this? Like the zoo to me, there was no enclosures, really. <laughs> Alex <laughs> the Lion does his show where he is sort of just like inches away right. from the public on a podium. Just like then- dancing around. And that all the animals could all visit each other also. Except for the penguins, because when they did it, they were breaking the rules. Right. Which was also strange to like, okay, we got to break out of here by digging, but also there's no enclosures and <laughs> also, they all leave. The other animals just leave to go find the first one. <laughs> this is the thing I'm talking about where like, I feel like I've been in note sessions where they're like, well, the internal logic of this movie doesn't match up. And they were like, we don't care. We the don't an- care at all. are going to be wherever we want them to be. Don't you think you would have gotten a note? of like hey zach you know that lions walk on four legs right dude (laughs) i I do i think i would have gotten that note and then i would have gotten the note also about the hippo because the hippo is walking (laughs) the hippo and the lion are walking on two legs the two horses are walking on four legs i mean did that bother you jennifer did you feel like why wouldn't they just get the basics down you know i didn't actually really think about it that deeply but i mean to the point about do zoos really look like this i've never been to the like central park zoo but i did grow up going to the san diego zoo 
which if you remember when they first land, yeah. When they first land on Madagascar, Alex is like tripping out because he's worried he's going to have to compete with Shamu, which was the resident, you know, it was like the killer whale Mm -hmm. that did all the acrobatics and stuff. And I just, I was so obsessed with Shamu when I was, when I was little, but I think it's pretty common for zoos to celebrate, uh, their flagships, you know, like when they have a really cool species in a zoo, they definitely do promote it because that's what people love, right? I mean, people love the lions and tigers and bears and pandas. And some of my colleagues did a study on trying to understand the attributes of what makes a species charismatic. And so okay. they put together this huge database of all of these kind of mostly terrestrial vertebrates, mammals. And they looked at all of these things like body size and do they have fur? Do they have hair? Do they have claws? Like how big are their teeth? And they found that it's body size and forward facing eyes that are the two okay. primary like triggers of oh what God. humans deem to be charismatic so like big yeah i mean that's true for me because when you were talking about ancient lemurs my first thought was like i'm so mad that i haven't gotten to see a lemur that's the size of a gorilla mm-hmm. <laughs> that was your first thought I'm so angry that i don't get to see a big gorilla with a big stripy tail swinging on yeah, light that, poles. that that pisses me right off i'm so angry about that to me that means they're kind of human-esque is that what we is that why we dig it you think totally we like anthropomorphize and then that's what we end up giving our money to so those species tend to get like a larger proportion of you know donations from the public and things like that oh boy i mean i guess it's just tougher for them to raise money for you know the conservation of ugly animals yeah i mean you would think that but we're so good at marketing now i mean you could sell anything Mm -hmm. so i think that there have been some studies that looked at you know with a dedicated marketing campaign where you can celebrate cool stuff like this frog has its babies in its mouth and isn't that cool give money to this species um that that you can like pull out interesting characteristics about almost anything and then improve Mm. people's willingness to give and also just their general concern over species that might not be the classic storybook animals that you see in you know zoos i mean i hate to be uh narcissistic here or self-promotive but zach i feel like the two of us could make a whole campaign for this like i would love to be a part of a project that just raises money for a ugly animal for a garbage animal we take the worst animal and be like listen but needs to be conserved we need to do the the sea bass revamp right on what's yeah. that fish called the horrible fish there's the so family. many horrible fish man to choose from we have albums worth of material and we basically make like i like to move it type catchy pop songs but you know the whole thing is just telling you like please you know contribute some money to a fossa or whatever a fusa well fusa fusa are cats and i feel like all cats pretty much have the internet unlock they're fine oh good call everyone's gonna bend over backwards well wait a minute can i ask about that i was curious if it is most like a cat because i read it also has a really long tail like a monkey and its ears are like a weasel's ears so like what is a fusa yeah so it is an endemic carnivore which sadly you know carnivores tend to get typecast as the villains of course which is what happened in madagascar as well in the film so unfair it is so unfair um but they're actually more closely related to the mongoose really okay wow maybe they do need our help then but i feel like i already know i know where this branding is going it's look at this cool cat (laughs) 
<laughs> people right love cats. we're gonna make it a cat for the branding yeah for the commercial well that's what i was saying with the i forget what that kind of sea bass is that isn't a sea bass mm. um hold on yeah let's get to the bottom of this but um the fossils are are, are interesting i mean madagascar has so much crazy biodiversity it is considered one of the biodiversity hotspots of the world over 90 percent of its species are only found there so it it's a really unique place and that's because it's evolved in isolation for 60 million years or so so you get these incredible species there that are found nowhere else and we should like stay away right is the lesson that we have learned as humans if we want them to sort of keep kicking around we should not go to Madagascar. Yeah, sadly, a lot of the, the species in the biodiversity of Madagascar, like many other places in the world, uh, the biodiversity is declining. Species oh, are under increasing threat. I know I'm such a bummer to talk to. I'm really going to need no, your levity. Everyone, everyone needs to learn to take care of Madagascar. So. Are we going there? Is that why? Are we the ones ruining it over and over again? Well, it was interesting in the movie how they celebrate it as the kind of this, you know, wild natural place, but there's actually 26 million people that live in Madagascar. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Who are suspiciously absent from this movie. Totally absent yeah. from the movie. But hey, I mean, doesn't um, Chris Rock's character, Marty, like the first thing he does, he's like, I want to go to the wild. He arrives in this wonderful place. They get through it all. And then at the very end, like, he has his dream. He's finally there. And what does he choose to do? He opens up a tiki bar. Not only that, but constructs Sad. a thing that would be difficult in my brain for a zebra to do. There's a lot of levers and pulleys and electrical lights <laughs> that come on in the sort of reveal. He's of got this it building. down pretty quick, too. It didn't feel like much time went by. Yeah. And listen, it's a cartoon. Sure. I'm okay with that. If a zebra wants to build a tiki bar and everyone spits seawater in each other's faces, this is good writing and I'm not, I don't have any notes for it. That's good. I prefer it over the lion walking on two legs the whole time. <laughs> if I have to pick one. Okay, I looked it up and I have actual information now. Here the we Chilean go. sea bass, which you will see on menus everywhere, mm. is actually a Patagonian toothfish. And it's this ugly, ugly fish. It's a deep sea fish. It's not a bass, but it tastes good. But they had a lot of problems selling it because it's such an ugly fish. Oh, no. So they rebranded it as the Chilean sea bass. Again, not a bass. And we can do that for the FUSA. It's the the Madagascar... um, Cat. Well, I was going to throw in another word there because Madagascar cat is... Madagascarian night cat. The Madagascarian Nightcat. I mean, now, it sounds cool. Now I'm thinking, okay, let's get an NFL team yep. to raise awareness. <laughs> Who's got a bad one? Let's let's change out any of the ones based on, you know, indigenous populations of America. You could now be the Madagascarian Nightcat. I mean, the Jets, I feel, I don't really follow football, but I, I have a feeling they're not great or something. So the new... The Jets? Yeah, so maybe What's your, we could have like the New York Madagascarian Nightcats. I mean, you got the tie-in because everyone in this movie is a New Yorker. There you go. All these animals can read the paper, but not speak <laughs> <laughs> Again, the internal logic, let's not dive into it too deep. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. I did want to ask, speaking of fish, uh, the Chilean sea bass specifically, I guess, there was an article in the National Geographic that you co-wrote, Jennifer, in 2015 entitled, What Are We Actually Protecting in the Ocean? 
And I have to ask about it because I just saw the documentary Seaspiracy on Netflix. Do you know about this or have you seen this? I have not seen it. Okay. They... I also haven't seen it, so I will also answer your questions about it. Yeah, please. I want both of you to answer at the same time. And there's a lot of claims in the movie that were very shocking to me. One of them, for example, is that 46% of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is made up of fishing nets. Like commercial fishing is the, is the big villain in this movie. And so I wanted to ask you directly if there like is such a thing as sustainable fishing and if we should be consuming seafood at all or should that be over for our species? Zach, why don't you take this one? Okay, Listen, Zach. The ocean is, the ocean is so big. Right, and there's a lot of fish in it. And now <laughs> Good opening. We put a lot. Yeah, listen, <laughs> there's a lot of fish in the ocean. It's very big. Now we've put a lot of plastic in it, and that plastic is gonna end up in these fish. Now whose fault is that? Is it my fault? A little bit. Is it company's fault? Yes. Even it sounds more. like a lot of bit. Yeah, even exactly. More. And if there's one thing that I've learned about companies recently, <laughs> is that they love. To sort of shift the blame to me, for example, right. recently learned that most of the recycling numbers that you see on the bottom of plastic, mm -hmm. anything over two, m most places is actually not recyclable. What? So you put like a three or a four or a seven into a recycling bin and they're going to throw it away. And the fact that those things are labeled with a recycling symbol at all is the result of the recycling industry or the plastics industry oh, being no. like, hey, listen, we can make this seem like it's not the fault of us for making plastic. It's these guys for not throwing it away. And so I'm inclined to say that I can eat as much fish as I want and that it's a company's fault for fishing so much. Is that right? I don't stand by that, that I just thought of. It's, inter it's an interesting argument. Agreed on the wish cycling. Guilty as well. Uh, you know, this idea that we could just kind of throw anything. I was, I was like two years ago, I realized that I really just have to stop putting my plastic bags into the recycling because they end up just choking the machines and they, they aren't recycling. Which is crazy, right? Because you would think if there was anything that we had figured out how to recycle, it would be basically the paper of plastic, which is plastic bags. <laughs> It's, like, how are we not just melting those down? I know. We do burn yeah. a lot of plastic. And a lot of plastic ends up in the oceans. You know, where you do have good, like, decent, reliable garbage, garbage and, and recycling systems, uh, the plastic ends up going into a landfill and not into the ocean. There are regions in the world that don't have very functioning uh garbage collection and recycling systems. And that's where the proliferation of single-use plastic is really causing a problem. Um, I sp have spent a lot of time in the ocean. I am a scuba diver. I do research in, in Borneo and in national parks. And yeah, pl plastic is everywhere. And I have noticed that the fish are getting scarcer and scarcer in some parts of the world. So Fish are declining, like biodiversity across the board, uh, in every realm, in our freshwater systems, in our lands, in our oceans. Biodiversity is not in a good state. Uh, we are, you know, facing both a climate and biodiversity crisis. That is well known. Um, and we have to take some pretty drastic changes to correct course uh, at this point in time. And I do think that what happens in the next 10 years will determine uh, certainly within our lifetimes, how we end up coping as a, a race on this planet. And just to put you on the spot, hot seat, are you prepared to sound the alarms right here on 
bad science. Are these good? Are these good alarms? Good alarms are bad alarms. <laughs> these, I think, for the first time in the to, podcast, are you going to celebrate global no. warming with these alarms? <laughs> I think the, for the first time on the show, these are bad alarms okay. that I'm asking you to sound about commercial fishing. What I was getting inundated with in this film was telling me that they're the ones uh, who are most responsible for, for killing all these species of fish. Yeah, there are one. Absolutely. There are sustainable ways to fish. So I think that, you know, the the burden, as you were talking about, Zach, it's on all of us. And we do have a role to play in ensuring that we are purchasing sustainable fish, that we're purchasing species that are being you know, transparently sold that we know where they're coming from and we know how they're being fished. Alaskan fisheries are some of the best in the world. So if I had to choose between um, Atlantic farmed salmon or wild caught Alaskan, where I know that they are really regulating those fisheries, I would choose Alaskan caught wild salmon um, over farmed. Okay. So now what you're saying, Jennifer, is harder than what I was saying, though, right? Because when I what I was saying was that it's not my fault, and I don't have to pay attention. It's just corporations' fault. And what yours, what you're saying, is that that may be true, but also you do have to pay attention. And and even if you're not the biggest problem, it is important for all of us to do our part. Yeah, I don't think you can recuse yourself from the the purchasing power and the decisions that you make. Sadly, that's that's fair. I'm gonna sit in the chair of the big fishing corporations real quick because Ethan, you notably did not invite any of them on this podcast. So I, I feel it's only fair if someone speaks for them. Correct, and no one better than you. So please, yeah, I, I think I think I'm in a position to do this, and they did pay me for being here, and uh, <laughs> I do legally need to say that. Um, sure, um, I, Zach I, Reno here on. Behalf of dolphin on safe behalf tuna, of big, go on behalf ahead. Of big fish. Um, <laughs> the thing about the ocean is it's big, and th- if yep. we don't take a lot of these fish out of the ocean, we're gonna have too many fish. Yeah, they're gonna go. They're gonna evolve, and they're gonna come on land. And you should be afraid. That's right. Yep. And you should yep. be afraid of what will happen if we big fish are not protecting all of you from little fish because you like tuna, but you don't like too many tuna. And you may not know that, but we do. And we have scientists that we paid to give us the numbers that we sort of wanted to see. Um, And and we stand by those. So, yeah. So just a review here, because I guess I'll play kind of the just bipartisan, you know, middle of the road guy here. Dr. Jennifer McGowan telling you, pay some attention, look up where your food's coming from, and then uh, Big Fish representative Zach Reno. Eat all of the, eat as, doesn't matter where they come from, eat as many as possible before they come for uh, our children, our schools, your jobs. Right, right, okay. I'm glad that we have that clear. Um, So moving on to like a really important, well thought out question I came up with. Melman's neck is bent a lot in this movie, the giraffe. And so normally when I see giraffes, their neck is just kind of up and every now and then they'll lean over a little bit to get something off a tree. Usually usually leaves, not just like something. (laughs) I don't know what they're they're doing on these trees, man. Uh, can giraffes just walk around with their head with their necks completely bent the other way all the time? <laughs> are they are they that by, flexible? Are they straight by choice and not because they have to be? Could they have noodle necks all the time? Yes. This is such an interesting. <laughs> I, I have no, I have no idea. All right, great. E- e- Ethan, 
No joke. Yep. I have a little bit of insight here. Here we go. And big fish representative Zach Reno, please. Well, no, answer now my I'm question. now I'm the official representative of the Santa Barbara Zoo. Oh, great. Santa Barbara Zoo representative Zach Reno. Santa right, Barbara Zoo has a place called Lemur Island, and that's very good. And neither here nor there to what I'm about to say. They also had a giraffe <laughs> with a crooked neck for <laughs> most of my childhood. And it was the sort of Alex the lion of the Santa Barbara Zoo was Ooh. the crooked neck giraffe. So giraffes can live with their necks being all bendy, but I did and not get the impression that it was a choice that that giraffe was making to be like, what if I just hold my neck like this for a while? I think right. it was the shape of that giraffe. More of an ailment, but he could still be a star. He could still be the biggest giraffe. He, uh, he was a star to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wanted to be like him when you grew up. I still do. With proper marketing, even <laughs> your crooked, a, a crooked neck giraffe can be a star. Now, that giraffe in the movie was Jewish, correct? We can say that although almost... <laughs> he had a Jewish doctor, for sure. He had a, he had a Jewish doctor. Well, I think that at one point, he says the last... The giraffe says his last name. Oh, really? I'm going to look on IMDb now, but I think he's like Melman something Owitz. I loved the part where he's like debating what his health insurance coverage is going to be. <laughs> and he's like terrified of having an HMO. And those are jokes for adults, Ethan. I mean, listen, jokes. it had jokes for adults. I just, I don't know. I felt like it was very heavy handed on the yeah slapstick kid stuff, which, hey, is really fun. And apparently kids love this movie and they made three more of them in a TV show. So, you know, what the hell am I talking about? I know. Like they made like five offshoots of it. I was thinking about this earlier today, too, because I was trying to figure out like why there wasn't like any conservation messaging in, in this film. Great call. Um, <laughs> Totally. And and I was like, well, what was going on in the world at this point in time? So this was 2005. Uh, I was working at a grocery store in San Francisco in 2005, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and, and then I remembered like 2005 might have been like right on the precipice of when conservation and kind of climate change really came into like the public domain because Hurricane Katrina hit right after that. And then we had an inconvenient truth from Al Gore coming out, which was, you know, launched climate change into household conversations. And so really, and, and I think it was like maybe that same year after was the very first episode of the BBC Attenborough Planet Earth series, which was oh, I mean, wow. groundbreaking at that time. And so I think that so much has happened since the first one came out that has now made, I think, conservation and biodiversity and the you know, crisis that's unfolding before us just a part of the conversation. And I, I was interested to, to think about how if they keep going with this, you know, these, these sequels, like what does Madagascar 20, you know, look like? Because if it comes out in like 25 years, some of the species in the first one might not even be around anymore. I mean, so sad. And, and, and I totally agree with you as far as putting it, like injecting it into the movie. We did um, Free Willy a while ago on the podcast and of course, I didn't remember this from when I was little, but rewatching it, there's a text at the end, right at the end of the movie, not, you know, after the credits post thing, like before all of that, there's a message that tells you where you can donate to help killer whales. And I just feel like it would be so beneficial to these movies. And I assume they don't do this in the other Madagascar movies, which I have not seen. 
but it would be so beneficial to just write where people can, you know, get more information or where to go donate because, you know, this is seen by my millions of people every year. Totally. I mean, it shapes. I, I grew up, I'm a product of the 80s. So I was heavily influenced by a movie called Fern Gully when I was a young girl. Oh, I don't remember. Are you kidding? Same, same. Yeah. And that was very environmentally messaged. Um, and so that was, that was in my, you know, very young adolescent brain along with reduce, reuse and recycle, which I think <laughs> kind of emerged at the time we were, at least I was in uh, elementary school. Pollution is the literal villain in Fern Gully. There's a big deforesting pollution machine and it's yes. killing all the fairies. And that, even as a kid, I was like, I'm on the fairy side here. I know Big this, time. this guy. And the villain was scary, and too. Robin Williams is in that movie as a uh, genetically mm -hmm. altered bat. Yep, there's, that's correct. Like, there's, a, there's an anti-animal testing message there that is somewhat undercut by the fact that he is very funny. It's a great film. And, and I love that it was heavy-handed with its messaging. I feel like that's, I don't know, it uh, inspired probably a lot of people to get into this field, which is vital because it makes me so sad that we're losing these species. It's like unacceptable. Well, you know what will make you happier? Here we go. I've got Melman's last name. Oh, hallelujah. Give it His to us. His name is Melman Mankiewicz. <laughs> right. The guy who wrote uh, <laughs> uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah, he's the mank. He's the mank of giraffes. <laughs> this is the real mank. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. I wanted to actually ask a question about the penguins. I love penguins always have, and the penguins in this movie, probably my favorite part of the movie. They're great. And They've had their own spin-off series, by the way. I need to watch that because I really love the penguin parts, and they seem like super smart in this movie, which I appreciated. They were like spies, uh, essentially. So can you accomplish my dream and just tell me that penguins are like actually really, really smart? <laughs> um I think smart is relative uh, in, in the animal kingdom. And I think it really is best positioned to evaluate on like how they cope with problem solving. And, and penguins, while not the most agile or nimble creatures, despite how they are portrayed in this film as having ninja-like skills. Um, assassins, if you will. <laughs> ninja-like assassins. Um, they are really excellent navigators, and they are also known to be extremely clever hunters. So well, I think, true. yeah, I think in the water, they might be more ninja-like than they are on land. Okay, I'll take well, it, we, tell you what. We watch them use a big steering wheel to beat, to beat up a lot of predators. And they put a bunch of humans on a lifeboat that they, quote, sent off to China, which, quick calculation from where Madagascar is, um, the people on that lifeboat are dead, right? <laughs> yeah. I Listen, I'll speak on behalf of uh, the cartographers of the world to tell you that those people are dead. They are murderers. Those penguins are assassins. <laughs> um, we are running short on time, but I have to ask about the hippo as well. Because I started just going down a rabbit hole. I don't know if this happened to you guys of looking at pictures of hippos and videos of hippos this morning. And I read that their closest living relatives might be pigs or whales and dolphins. So can you give me some information on what the heck this super weird looking animal is? Uh, all I know is that they are hippos. <laughs> I don't know who their closest uh, relatives are, but I do know that they spend up to 16 hours a day submerged in rivers and lakes, and that's to kind of keep their massive bodies 
cool under this beating down sun. And that sounds pretty cool to me. I mean, who doesn't love a bath? I would spend that much time submerged if it was a socially acceptable <laughs> to do so. I will also say hippos are real dangerous, right? Like if you like it looks like it. That hippo is yeah. putting the lion in its place. And I think I'm I'm will I will speak for scientists, which I am not, when I say that that's accurate. Um, and I will also speak for uh, casting departments when I say that uh, this movie is wild in that every character is an animal, basically. And I think there is literally two women in it. One is the hippo and one mm-hmm. is the old lady who I think has no lines. That's correct. I don't think a single other woman speaks in this movie at any point in time. I noticed that right away, actually, during the opening sequence where they are writing the actor, like, you know, the cast. And it's just like dude after dude after dude. I'm like, really? But isn't it an animal movie? They like, all could, it's, there's no reason that it's all men. It's Why? wild to me. Yeah, I thought that was really strange. Maybe they fixed it with the other ones. Again, that I might seen just be because and you can tell me if the science is wrong here i think something like 98 percent of all animals are men i thought you were gonna yeah, say no, animators okay. and i was gonna confirm that but <laughs> no animals all animals are are all giraffes are jews most animals are men <laughs> this has been uh your big fish report from zach reno and wait so can we get a definitive or maybe not even definitive but just a guess on hippo versus lion who's taking hippo. down who here hippo. uh dr mcgowan I will put my money. What? Ooh, oh, yeah, I'll go with you on hippo. Okay. You've seen the video of a hippo splitting a watermelon with its mouth? Yeah, super jaws. You know that game Hungry Hungry Hippo where four hippos just destroy plastic pellets? <laughs> I love that game. Yeah. I don't know why I love that game so much, but you love I it spent because it time. sparks something that you know true deep within your soul, which is that hippos <laughs> exist to destroy. With their mouths, <laughs> they're they're they're, they're always they're, hungry. They're they're hungry. They're coming bright rainbow colors. Yep, and they're constantly on the hunt for food. And their favorite food is, of course, little white pellets that pop yes. up from the ground. Also, I don't want to overbook us here, Zach. Obviously, I know you're a busy guy um, spending 16 hours of your day submerged when I can, but but when you can, when socially acceptable. But should we not only make an album promoting ugly animals, but also make the film version of Hungry Hungry Hippos because I feel like it's a pretty popular game. You know, brand recognition is high. I would I haven't I would watch that movie. Shocked if a Hungry Hungry Hippos movie was not currently underway. And if it hasn't, Ethan So we're too late. If it if it if it has not that is a blank check we should be writing for our, to ourselves. Um, Dr. McGowan, would you serve as like science uh, supervisor on Hungry Hungry Hippos for us? Well, can I, we get you on the team? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, well, listen, thank you both for joining me today. This has been fascinating and super fun. Um, Zach, obviously people need to be listening to Off Book if they're not currently listening to Off Book. It's one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Where can people find you? Is there anything else you'd like to tell people about? Yeah, go to your grocery store and just buy the fish. Don't pay too much attention to where it comes from. And um, corporations always have your best interest in mind. That's why they're big and rich. And that's sort of the sort of thing that I will leave you with. Wow. Wonderful words. Uh, just a just a nice 
warm, comforting message there to to leave us with. Um, Dr. Jennifer McGowan, uh, would you like to tell people about anything? Well, I don't have anything specific uh, to say, except that it's it's not too late to change course for the planet. And we still have some time, but uh, the decisions that we make every day will have an impact. And we need to hold those corporations as well as businesses and ourselves accountable for what happens. Okay, super dramatic aggressive calling out <laughs> lightning round section what are the worst organizations who who's who's on your list who are you throwing darts at I your mom and pop corner store <laughs> just like the one guy fishing with a single pole on the dock yeah late at night or or buca de peppo up to you <laughs> did you say buca de peppo yeah, for some reason, I just feel like, I don't know, man, it's a shadowy place. Is Buca de Peppo the, 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 the villainous cousin to Buca de Peppo? <laughs> oh, am I saying the name wrong? Is that what happened? I don't know. I don't like to call people out on what could be an honest mistake. I just am interested in this restaurant, Buca de Peppo. <laughs> they only serve pepperoni-based and, and Chilean sea bass. And Chilean. Well, that can't be good for the environment. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, write us from your local Buca de Pepo. And <laughs> thank you both for joining me. Hopefully, we can speak again about one of these Madagascar sequels. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bad Science is a seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. And the executive Pradaskar producer is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Pod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at badscienceatseeker.com. That's badscienceatseeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver. But it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>